to another episode of Sensational Customer Experiences. This is the show where we explore the idea that everything your customer knows about you is a direct result of input from their five senses. It's what they see, hear, taste, smell, and touch that determines how much they love you. And now here's your host and consumer experience expert, Wes Miller. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Sensational Customer Experiences. I'm your host, Wes Miller, and I'm excited about being here today with Dr. Barbara Strahl, who is an uh, incredible conflict resolution master. In fact, she uh, received her PhD in conflict analysis and resolution from Nova Southeastern University. I've had the great honor of working with her in many different uh, capacities and seeing her work in this incredible process of conflict resolution. As we think about customers and, and the sensory experiences, certainly conflict is something that we're often talking about, those difficult customers, customers who need some special care in order to make them feel good about maybe a situation that hasn't gone as well as we had hoped. And so, Barbara, I'm hoping that we're going to, actually, I guess I should say Dr. Strahl. Uh, we're hoping that today you'll give us some good insight on that. Uh, before we start, there's one thing I do want to ask, and, and those of you who log into the episode page for this episode will notice that I have referenced her name with a small b rather than a capital B, and I've always wanted to ask this question, what is the significance of the small b uh, when you write your first name? Oh my, that's a difficult question. Um, I do use a small b, and it came from the feminist movement and recognizing that sometimes women are not recognized in the same capacity that men are recognized. So you'll notice that my first name has the small case letter, where my second name has a traditional capital letter, because that came from my husband rather than myself. Okay, and those of you out there listening who want further information on that, I would encourage you to jot your questions down in the comments section on the episode page for this episode. So I'd like to just kind of jump right in. Uh, you know, Barbara has done some incredible things. She's uh, written a book, Transformative Change. In fact, we have links to that on our episode page as well. She has, uh, is currently working on a new book, that she's um, co-writing, and her. But what is she is what she is best known for is her conflict work and training uh, for mediation and facilitation skills. And in doing that, she works a lot with people who uh, need that kind of help and want to have a better understanding of how they can, how we all have opportunities to move through conflict when we have the right skills and the right uh, knowledge of what to do. So let's just start with that, Barbara. Tell me some, some of your thoughts about, like, where do you get inspired from? Where, where do you get your ideas for this conflict resolution with, with folks that sometimes we are in conflict with? I think a lot of it parallels the work that you're doing right now, Wes, with talking about experiences related to the senses, because conflict happens because of how we perceive 
what's going on in our world, how we hear what people are saying, how we see what people are doing, and how we take that often creates conflict. And so in order to rewind that or to help people move through it, we have to deal with the senses, what people say, what they do, how they're experiencing each other. So the first, yeah, that, so the, but the first thought that comes to mind, and I bet there's a lot of other people out there thinking this, when I see a conflict or when I know that a customer or a client is upset with me and they're coming at me and you know it because you see, you can see the look on their face, talk about the sensory stuff, you see it, you know the way they're looking, the, the facial expression, and as soon as they open their mouth and you hear the tone, you know they're upset. I want to run the other way. So I can't help but ask the question, what would make someone want to not only not run away, but dig so deep into it that she would get a PhD in the study of conflict? I think it's a challenge. The, the challenge was appealing to me. And also, I have a tendency to take the alternative perspective. And so rather than running away, it gives me an opportunity to, to practice skills, to connect with people, and to help people move from that uncomfortable position to some place that they're more, feel more capable and more competent and able to deal with what's happening to them and with them. So how do you do that? It begins with setting a safe environment. And to do that, you want to pay attention to a lot of the things that are going on around you. You want to see if there's distractions and make it as private a place as possible. You want to make sure it's a comfortable place so it doesn't look haphazard, it looks intentional. Seating is comfortable. People have an opportunity to look at each other without being in a place where it feels dangerous. And then it moves into helping people have conversations, helping them listen to each other, helping them listen to themselves, and also then be able to express their thoughts, their feelings, and their concerns. So can you give us some pointers on how to do that? How do we get people to listen? How do we get people in the frame of mind where they're willing to listen? A lot of my experiences with upset customers is that they don't want to hear or listen. They just want to spew their anger and spew their, uh, their message about what's upsetting them at that moment. Okay, there's a, a lot involved in that. Um, it begins, like I said, with having a safe environment. So if you're somebody who's at a front desk, you may want to step to the side to interact with this person. Um, for mediations and conflict resolution, we take people into a private room. So setting that environment, making it safe. And then secondly, something you said is key to what doesn't help us, and that is they don't want to listen. So we need to listen to them. We need to hear what they're saying. Doesn't mean we agree with it. 
It doesn't mean that they're right, but we need to hear them. So taking a deep breath ourselves so that we don't have to interrupt or have to interject our own thoughts and then hearing what they have to say and helping them know that we've heard them by using good active listening, repeating back or paraphrasing what we've heard them say, or maybe asking questions about something that they've said to clarify it or to have them expand on it. You'll see angry, upset people when you do that literally relax. Their shoulders will come down, their body language becomes less tense and more relaxed. And once they feel heard, then you have an opportunity to share information or to share, to talk about options that are available. So the key messages I hear you saying is that really it's about us listening first and giving people that opportunity to say what is on their mind. And then if we do that effectively and we let them know that we're listening by some responses and paraphrasing and rephrasing what we're hearing, we can also look to see if their body language starts to communicate back to us that they are in fact calming down. I heard you say things like, their shoulders will come down and we'll start to see a more relaxed look with them. Am, am I getting that? Absolutely. Nice job. So, so that's, a, that's a critical skill to be mastered by those who want to manage conflict better. And there's a lot of sensory stuff in there because I hear you mentioning a lot about what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and how you're responding to that. Absolutely. I also appreciate your comments on creating a safe space. What if I'm concerned about my safety? What do I need to do to make sure that I'm safe? Oddly enough, by creating a safer space for the other person, as you can, by using that active listening, you increase your safety. But you also want to be mindful, too, of where you are, what your options are. For example, if I'm working with somebody in a room and I'm by myself or even with a, a partner, I'm going to want to position myself by the door so that if anything goes haywire, I have that opportunity to escape. You also want to set your environment so that there aren't things there that people can grab and utilize as something to threaten you or as a weapon. Those, those factors will be helpful in creating safety for yourself. Also, if you're, if you're working in an area where there are other people, having other people know what you're doing and where you are is key to being safe as well. You always want backup. So I'm hearing, again, a lot of the sensory concept of, like, do a sensory audit of your surroundings to make sure that it's a safe space for both of you. And that, again, what I'm hearing you say is that if I focus on creating safety for the other person, I increase my own level of safety. Yes, I like the word audit. That's, that's a nice way to put that. And I think in any place that you work or 
interact with others, knowing what's in your surrounding, communicating with those around you is really helpful. Preparation can be key sometimes. Very important for that preparation. Okay. So was there a particular event or something that happened in your life that inspired you to want to work in this field? Interesting. Interesting question. I'm not sure that there was one particular event. I lived in a home that was rather conflictual. And I think that contributed to my wanting other people to be safe and to be heard. And uh, my father also was a minister. And I think some of his work and his preaching also contributed to my desire to help others. So this is something that has grown up with you from when you were young at home. Yes. Were there any people that you looked up to that you saw as examples of what you wanted to strive towards when you thought about conflict and conflict resolution? Not necessarily that were close to me, but I was familiar with the work of Gandhi as I went through school and and I think his work I thought was phenomenal and worth modeling. I also lived during the era of Martin Luther King, who worked very much to do things in in a nonviolent manner and in a manner that was inclusive of people. Then as I as I began going to school, then there were many authors and people who I eventually got to meet that were helpful in my pursuing this field and in honing my skills. John Paul Lederach was instrumental, Kenneth Cloak, uh, Louise Diamond, Marg Huber. These are all uh, conflict people, and their works and their writings were very important to me. I recognize some of those names that you mentioned, and I know some of them have written works I would like to uh, include on our episode page for this episode a list of some of those uh, works. So when uh, I'll maybe send you an email offline and get some of your recommendations for that so that if we have listeners who would like to look into some of those works, they'll be able to reference them from the episode page. That would be great. Okay. So... Going in a little bit of a different direction, I know that you do a lot of training for conflict resolution. Tell us more about the types of training and consulting services that you provide. Maybe there are some potential clients out there listening who would be interested in working with you. This is your chance to give yourself a plug. Thank you so much. Uh, I do a variety of training, and most of it is customized. I do do training for mediators, which is based on a national model for mediators. and is a 40-hour training and helps people prepare to work with two or more people in resolving conflict. I also do customized training for anything that relates to conflict. So some of that times that's communication skills, 
it might be leadership, it might be negotiation, it could be a variety of other things if people see a need in their organizations or communities where people are having difficulty resolving issues or, or getting along with each other. Those trainings uh, are customized based on the amount of time people have, the number of objectives they would like to accomplish during that training, and if there's any special skills that they would like to learn. So there's things, different communication skills that can be utilized in the training. There's negotiation skills, recognizing conflict, recognizing your own conflict styles and how that interacts with other people, being able to analyze conflict that's going around you. I also help organizations develop systems for working with conflict in their organization. So what kind of processes do they want to have and who needs to be trained in those processes so that they can better navigate through conflict. What are some examples of processes that you see companies wanting to implement in their workspaces? Mediation is the typical one, and mediation of one form or another. I worked with one organization who started off wanting mediation, but what they were really wanting was for their employees to be able to negotiate or conciliate with the people that they worked with. The people they worked with were in conflict, and they wanted to help them explore options and be able to make decisions with less conflict. And so we called that a facilitated negotiation, a facilitated conciliation. And so it depends. Others want to actually train mediators within their organization so that when parties may go to a human resources with concerns, they can invite mediators in to sit down with parties to resolve issues. I want to make sure that people understand what you mean or what the term mediation means, because I know Sometimes I've spoken with people and they have a misunderstanding of what mediation is, of what a mediator does. Could you give us like the 30-second answer or synopsis on what you mean when you say mediation and mediators? The elevator speech is what you're looking for. There you go, yes, the elevator. If, if I were in the elevator with you and I said, what is mediation, you would say... It's not medication, and it's not meditation, it's mediation, which is when two or more people have a conflict, they have the opportunity to sit down with a neutral third party to help discuss and talk about the conflict that they have and resolve it making their own decisions without somebody else telling them what to do. So the mediator takes them through a process, but the outcomes are totally up to the parties that are involved. So the mediator doesn't make any decisions or tell people what to do? 
Exactly right. So, so I hear a lot of people in the workplaces that I'm familiar with right now, I can hear them saying, yeah, but doesn't that take a lot of time? Isn't it just better if you have your HR uh, employee relations specialist just tell people, here's what you're going to do and here's how you're going to fix the problem? Isn't that a more efficient, quicker way? Well, it is quicker, absolutely, but not necessarily more efficient. In some respects, we as human beings never quite grow up. And it's much like when our parents tell us things that go in one ear and right out the other. Unless we are involved, we participate in sharing our thoughts and making our own decisions, we're much less likely to follow through with the outcome. If you think about it, when you go to court, Cases are resolved 100% of the time. You've got a judge telling parties what to do. But compliance rate, people following through with that decision, take place less than 50% of the time. Where when parties sit down with a neutral third party or even with themselves in a negotiation and they make their own decisions, they're gonna follow through with that decision probably 75 to 85% of the time, sometimes higher, because it was their decision, they gave their word, and they're much more likely than to follow through. So it's really about the efficiency of the follow through and the ongoing aspect of the conflict that is the best outcome from a mediation. Yes. Okay. Without like telling us the names or giving us any of the of your clients, can you share with us a story, a success story of when you've seen this implemented in the workplace, what it looked like? Uh, so maybe one of our listeners out there is a is a leader in a company and wants to have a more uh, have a better. I just have an example of what that could look like in their workplace. Do you have an example of that? Oh, you're making me stretch. Part of being a, a good mediator is forgetting what I've mediated, since it's not something that's supposed to be shared with anybody else. But I, I mediate quite a few discrimination cases, or that's what they're called, are discrimination cases. And it's typically an employee sitting down with a supervisor or a manager and complaining that they've been treated unfairly. And they base it on usually one of the protected classes, whether that be race or religion or gender or age. And what I, what I most often find is that they're feeling like that supervisor has not listened to them, has talked to them without much respect, and they're looking for a venue to have a conversation. And so one, one case that I did a while ago, the employee was, was really distraught and felt like the supervisor had singled them out in front of other employees, had belittled them in front of other employees, had, had no value for the work that they did, and they were really upset and were trying to figure out 
how to either crawl under the desk or get out of that department. And the manager, the supervisor in that case, had no clue that that employee felt when they talked about them in an employee party, that they felt that they were singled out or belittled. They felt like they had been trying to include them in the group and had maybe tried to make them part of the group so that they wouldn't feel so separate. And it just didn't work out. And recognizing when they listened to the employee how they related those experiences, they learned a little bit more about that employee's personality and things that helped them feel like they were included and helped them feel like they were valued. And so they made some decisions about things that would be shared with the group, things that would not be shared with the group, um, how they would have private conversations if there were issues, and there was a recognition of each other in their connections and as people, and a commitment to respect each other in the future. That's a great story. It reminds us of the, reminds me of the statement I'm often making that everything your customer, and I oftentimes replace that word customer with client, consumer, employee, team member, everything your employee knows about you is a direct, uh, direct result of the input they have from their senses. And you talked about how this employee w was feeling when they heard and saw certain things that the manager was doing. Yes. So it's really important. I, I hear you saying that it's important to keep that in mind and to really take stock of all the sensory input that we're putting out there and how people respond. And sometimes I hear you saying that we might have the best intentions, but it may not be received that way. And we have to be very in tune to what people are communicating with regards to the messages we're sending. Absolutely. Most of the issues in the mediations that I do boil down to respect. And while that seems to be something that ought to be across the board, everybody feels respected in different ways. And what you see, what you hear, what people do impact that feeling of respect. And it's important to learn what each person that you interact with sees as respect. Thank you for that. I have heard you say to me in the past that one of the first, I like to talk a lot about first impressions. I think that's really important. We all have an opportunity to do a first impression, but we only get a first opportunity to do that. And I've heard you talk about the first impression you like to give people is this idea that you are a safe place or a safe space. What does that mean? It means that I want people to quickly discern that I am non-judgmental, that I accept them as who they are and where they are, and that I'm somebody that they can open up to in confidence that that won't be shared with other people. 
So that sounds like a great first impression to give, particularly if there's someone approaching us that wants to be in conflict. So can you give us some pointers on what is it you do to create that first impression, something that we can do ourselves? You know, preparation is a, is a big piece of that. I think having that intention and going into any, any setting, whether it's a workplace setting or a party or a family gathering, having the intention is important. And part of that will show up by one, being relaxed yourself. So taking deep breaths before you go into a setting is helpful so that you're relaxed and you're comfortable. I think using somebody's name is really important so that they feel recognized as a person and as somebody worth valuing. And then being that good active listener, using good eye contact, acting, looking like you're listening and then being able to paraphrase that back, repeat it back, or ask questions based on that is also key. So once again, it's a great summary of some of the sensational things that we talk about with the sensational customer experiences concepts that we promote. It also sounds like you're talking a lot about having an open mind. Yes. and being open-minded to people. Um, what things do you try to keep an open mind about? Most things. You know, I think we all have preferences and biases and, and things that we think are right. And we often can find ourselves jumping to conclusions or immediately reacting to what somebody says as being right or wrong or good or bad. And so I think most things I try to keep an open mind about. So a better question for that might be, how can we do that? Because you're right, we all have these biases. We all have these opinions that we are constantly seeing challenged. And it sometimes is difficult to keep an open mind because of that. So is there something, you know, some mantra or some thought I can keep in my mind that can remind me to have an open mind even when my opinions and biases are being challenged by someone? Good question. I think, I think not only a mantra, but I think you need to do a lot of self-reflection as, as you go through a day. You know, when you wake up in the morning, set an intention, and you close out your day, review the day, and evaluate how you did it. Did it go like you wanted to? Were there things you would like to do differently? And then when you're in those settings, you can just recognize that people are doing the best that they can at any given moment and that everyone is entitled to their opinion. And so that's a good mantra right there is everyone is entitled to think their own thoughts. And then also, a mantra might be, everybody deserves to be listened to. And another one might be, I might learn something new here, if I can keep an open mind. I think people 
in this day and age and with the political climate, you know, people have difficulty listening to each other. But I think if you dig down and you really listen closely, you expand the conversation, you find that people are more alike than different, which might be another good mantra, is find the commonalities, because that gives you a starting place. So lots of little mantras in there. I might learn something new. Everybody's entitled to, to a say. Everybody's entitled to be listened to are good things to help you keep that open mind and be able to listen and recognizing that you're going to get a chance to share what you want to share at some point if you listen to the other person. So that gives me another chance to plug the episode page for this episode on the website, uh, sensationalcustomerexperiences.com. We will put some of those mantras. In fact, I'll go back and capture those and type that list up so that you can go to the episode page and actually read those, those wonderful mantras from, from Dr. Strahl and use those to help with the opening of minds and with the uh, checking, putting into check those opinions or biases that you might have. Well, you have been an incredible guest today. You've given us some phenomenal uh, insight to some different ideas for what we might do to keep in mind our sensory approaches to other people when it comes to handling and managing conflict. Is there anything that, that you didn't get a chance to share that you'd like to share? I can't think of anything right off. You've been a great interviewer. I so appreciate having time to talk about these things. Well, that, that moves me right then to, I always ask every guest, and, and my listeners know this, we ask every guest a fun question, a fun sensory-related question, and I have one for you. Okay. And that would be, what is, and this is just a fun question, so you don't have to have your conflict resolution hat on for this one. So the, the question is, what is something you eat that other people would find gross? <laughs> oh, I eat pretty simply. So in general, it's probably just vegetables because I'm a vegetarian and so I don't meet, eat meat. And I have difficulty getting friends and family to even eat a vegetarian meal because they think it's gross. Okay, so vegetables are gross. And I bet there's a lot of kids out there who are saying, this lady knows her stuff. And finally, that moves us then to the final aspect of our program, which is that part of the program we call, now that makes sense to me. And that's where I'm inviting you to identify or share with us uh, one or two strategies that our audience can use to help them develop sensational customer experiences from your perspective. I think probably self-reflection. Reflect on what makes you feel valued, what makes you feel important, and what makes you feel respected. I bet when you reflect on that, that you're going to find that it's how people treated you, what they said, what they didn't say, 
where they where they chose to talk with you, how much time they gave you, and all of those different sensory kinds of things, whether they touched you or were close to you or were distant from you, whether the location smelled good, whether they smelled good or bad. I think that reflection will help you and utilize that information to provide good customer service for your customers and clients. Excellent. Thank you. Okay, now I'm going to go back and I have, you, you've brought something up that's going to be a bonus question because I actually had this come up in training recently. And it has to do with, it's a conflict related type question. And it's, how do I have the conversation with someone who has body odor? And so this is a group of new supervisors. They had one of them had a person that was in the group that worked for them that smelled bad and they did not want to have that conversation. So any advice for those supervisors that have smelly employees and how to to do that in a way that because that, that that's kind of a conflict, I think. Sure, sure. And you'll find different people and different cultures and all of that react and respond differently. But I find that when you've got difficult information, one of the best things that you can do is ask permission to share information. Maybe you don't tell them if they aren't interested. So you might say something like, would you be interested in me sharing information about something that might be impacting your success? And if they say yes, then you can say, I've, I've experienced this myself, or I've had comments from other people that have concerns about your, your, how, how you smell in the workplace. And I know that sometimes that can't be controlled, but I just wanted you to know that that was an issue that might be impacting how people respond to you. And if there's anything I can do to help, please don't hesitate to ask. And there you have it, the, the answer to a bonus question for our listeners today. But notice how cruel I am. I make my listeners listen all the way through to the end of the program to get that wonderful bonus material. Well, Dr. Strahl, thank you so much. Uh, we will have your contact information on the episode page for this episode, anyone who would like to reach out to you, I assume that you're okay with having people reach out to you. Absolutely. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. And I look forward to uh, the next time we meet and visit. Absolutely. Thanks for your great questions. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Bye. Wow. Some great and excellent advice from a leader in the field when it comes to conflict resolution. I hope that you found this information to be helpful, and I hope that you recognize and can appreciate now the aspect of the senses and the sensory experience that a person is having, particularly when there's a conflict. 
creating sensational customer experiences sometimes means that we have to make up for a shortcoming or we have to accommodate or attend to someone who maybe isn't experiencing what we're offering in the way that we thought they would. And sometimes we have to accommodate that. One of the models that I like to use is the TAME model, T-A-M-E. And it's an acronym I use for helping to reduce or lower conflict. The T stands for thank you. Always thank people for telling you about a conflict or a dispute that they have with you. People don't have to tell you about their disputes or their conflict. A lot of times they just walk away. So I always believe you should thank people. The A in TAME stands for apologize. Apologize that the dispute or the conflict happen. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're accepting blame, but you are acknowledging that you feel bad or that you regret that the situation, dispute, or scenario happened. The M in TAME, this is really critical. It's for mention what you can do. How many times have you been in a conflict or had a dispute with a vendor or a supplier or someone that you're looking to for a service experience and all they want to focus on is what they can't do. I'm sorry, but we can't do that. Or I'm sorry, our policy is. Rather than do that, which really escalates people in their feelings of conflict and anxiety, I really encourage you to use the M in TAME for mention what you can do. And I would start with giving people one or two options. If you give them too much more beyond that, then they get confused. And you might actually find that the dispute or conflict can escalate because now they can't really decide what they want. So give them one or two options. Mention what you can do. And the E in TAME stands for ensure follow-through. How many times have you had a conflict or a dispute? You were told that something was going to be done to resolve it, and then radio silence. Nothing was done. I would encourage you to use that E in TAME for ensuring that whatever it is you mentioned you would do, you actually do. And if you're not responsible or the one who is actually supposed to do it, but you oversee those who are, then you need to take responsibility for making sure that the reaction or the response mentioned in the M part of TAME was actually carried out. So that's TAME. It's thank them for telling you about the conflict. It's apologize for the conflict having happened. Mention what you can do not what you can't do, and then ensure that you actually follow through with it, whether it's you actually doing the action or whomever you're responsible for making sure that they do that. I appreciate you for listening and joining me for another episode of Sensational Customer Experiences. I value you as one of my audience members, and I look forward to delivering more programming for you that hopefully will support your delivery and creation of sensational customer experiences. Until next time, this is Wes Miller. For free tips, resources, and information, visit sensationalcustomerexperiences.com. 
your premier experience brand brought to you by Training for Results, located in the sensory capital of the world, Las Vegas, Nevada. Until next time, remember, if you can sense it, your customers can too.